Let's open up our Bibles now to Romans chapter 3, verse 21. We are continuing on in this glorious epistle of Romans, and we have been actually in this, uh, this very passage, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, we've been here uh, for a number of weeks, and so this, this week will be our last week here. Uh, so let's read together now from uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 21, this glorious paragraph that we have been looking at for a couple of weeks now. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Thank you for this precious treasure that you have given to us, that, that through your word we hear the voice of our God, that we can, we can actually come to know you. You had given us yourself in your word. Thank you, Lord, that by your spirits working through your word, our lives can actually be transformed. That which is dead can be brought to life. That which is is blind can be made to see. And I pray, God, that your word would accomplish all of its good work in us this morning. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word. Let the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, picture this scene in your minds with me. It's January of 1981. And a plane has landed on the runway. It is taxied to a stop. The door of the plane opens, and out of the door, down the stairs, come 52 passengers. And there is a large crowd waiting down on the tarmac for them to arrive. And as the passengers emerge from that plane, the crowd begins to cheer. Cheers of celebration. Now, we can all imagine a scene like that in our minds but if we don't know the, the context that led to that moment in history that I am describing, if we don't know the context behind that, we won't understand what's really happening in this celebration. If we do know the context, we're going to know there's much, much more going on in this scene. In fact, we, we couldn't grasp the meaning of this scene if we don't know the context, if we don't know the history that led to this moment. It was about 450 days prior to that moment, back in November 4th of 1979, that all of these 52 passengers that are now getting off this plane to celebration were actually together in the U.S. Embassy in Tehran, Iran. And a group of Iranian students stormed that embassy while they were there and took everyone that was inside hostage for 444 days. And they were just there, these American citizens, hostage in Iran, until a new president, Ronald Reagan, was sworn into office. And in January of 1981, these 52 remaining hostages were set free. And so when that plane landed, when that door opened up, when those passengers began to exit down those stairs, 
It was a moment of tremendous celebration, not just for the people there, but for the whole nation. But without the prior terrible context of, of uh, being kidnapped and held in bondage, we can't fully grasp the magnitude of that moment. We might think it's just some triumphant sports franchise returning. And so it's that very idea why we have taken several weeks to go through this paragraph right here. Paul has labored with us in the early chapters of Romans to give us the bad news. He has been preparing us, giving us the backstory, but really it's the current story of all of humanity, this terrible bad news. And we have spent week after week after week after week, digging through all of what Paul has said about just how terrible, just how bleak the situation is for humanity. And because we've done that, we're ready to see how glorious this good news really is. We really see how beautiful the gospel is. And so this this passage that we've been looking at, this salvation scene, if you will, is loaded with meaning, but there's no way we can fully appreciate that meaning if we don't know what happened before it, what led up to that moment, the, the, the truly awful bad news that makes such a salvation necessary for us. In other words, the more we grasp the bad news of the gospel, the more we can grasp the good news of the gospel, and the better that good news becomes. And so... We again, one more time, are going to remind ourselves briefly of what Paul told us in those first three chapters. Because the bad news of the gospel is far worse than being held for two years a prisoner in Iran. As terrible as that was, the bad news of the gospel is much worse. The bad news of the gospel tells us we are all unrighteous. All of humanity lumped together in one group of unrighteousness. We, we as such, as unrighteous people, were under the reign of sin, under its domination, held captive by it. And because of that, we are under, because of this unrighteousness, because we are bound up in sin, we are under the present wrath of God. More than that, we have no desire to change our condition whatsoever. We're happy to be there. We feel good about it. We're haters of God, Paul says. We are rebellious by nature, we're born rebellious, and we are rebellious by our every choice. And this is true, Paul says, without exception. There's, there's no one who can separate themselves from this mass of humanity. There's, this is an indivisible unit of all of humanity. No one is any better off than anyone else. We said last week, Paul puts all of us in the morgue, and nobody in the morgue is doing any better than anybody else in that morgue. It doesn't matter how much money you had in your lifetime. It doesn't matter how good of a person you were. The gospel leaves all of humanity utterly without excuse. There's no argument that can be made. There's nothing we can say. The gospel simply accuses us and then condemns us. And so Paul has gone to great lengths to show us all of humanity in a prison cell down at the bottom of the abyss of of moral filth and rebellion and of God's righteous wrath in response. And, And all people are down there with no hope of climbing out, with no desire to free themselves. And we must understand that this is true. We must understand that this really is the human condition. 
Because until we believe the bad news of the gospel, we can never receive the good news that the gospel proclaims to us. That that God's righteousness is freely given by grace through faith to unrighteous sinners like us. That's what this passage is all about. The thing that we need most, the thing we need more than anything else as unrighteous sinners is for Christ's righteous status, his perfection to be applied to us. All I've ever been, all that you have ever been, all that you will ever be apart from Christ is unrighteous. Even the best things that those who reject God do are unrighteous. They're sinful. But all Christ has ever been and all Christ will ever be is righteous, perfectly so, completely so. And he is righteous with the kind of righteousness, the only kind of righteousness that God is pleased with. It's the only righteousness that God rejoices in. It's the only righteousness that God accepts. And here's the good news. Here's what the gospel tells us. After telling us you've got none of that kind of righteousness at all. The gospel tells us that Christ, who has it in infinite supply, declares that righteousness, declares his righteousness over the lives of unrighteous sinners. All of this happens, Paul has shown us, by faith alone. In other words, it's not by our working that we get this status. It's not by our our working and our striving. It's not that we can earn it and one day God looks at us and goes, you're perfect, you've never sinned. All you've done is perfection every time. We can never work our way there, could we? No, it's given as a free gift of his grace. He just gives it to all who trust in his son. That's the good news of the gospel. It is the best news. It is the greatest news. So as we've been working our way through this passage, we've seen a few things about how this happens, about this kind of righteousness that that God gives. This righteousness is found, Paul has said, entirely apart from our works, verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested, is revealed apart from the law. So so our moral goodness, our works of the law could never achieve the perfect standard of God's righteousness. We can't get there. We've seen that this righteousness needs to be provided by God himself. He says in verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Again, we can't achieve it. We can't earn it. It doesn't come from our good works. It is his. He achieved it. He earned it, and so only he can give it to us. We can't ever earn that. The only thing that comes from us is unrighteousness. He says then this righteousness can only be received by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one way we can even receive this gift. Our hand that reaches out to receive the gift has to be an empty hand. It can't be a hand that's reaching out to offer God something that, that would put him in our debt. It's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that is the instrument through which this righteousness is given. This righteousness is a gift that God gives by his grace. He goes on in verse 22. There is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Being justified means to be given a righteous status. 
Like we said last week, it's, it's not just that you're, that you're not being held responsible for having done the wrong thing, you're credited for having done the right thing. It's not just like I never sinned, it's just like I always obeyed. And this is what it means to be justified, is to be given this status. It's not tied to our works, it's a gift of grace. God credits Jesus' perfect righteousness to you if you're a believer. And then he treats you, here's the best thing, and then he treats you accordingly. All you have from him is favor, Christian. That's all Christians have from God. There's nothing else. As we sang this morning, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no one could bid me thence depart. You are, you are given by God Jesus' perfect status. So as long as the Lord Jesus Christ remains in good standing with the Father, God has nothing towards you, Christian, but favor. What could be better than that? What a glorious gospel. This righteousness we saw comes because of Christ's redeeming work. He says in verse 24, are justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. These two concepts, redemption, to have been purchased out of the slave market of sin. To be purchased out of your bondage to sin, now to be a slave of Christ. And secondly, propitiation, Christ in our place bearing the wrath that we deserve. Now that brings us to where we are this morning as we finish out this paragraph because in the rest of this paragraph, Paul's gonna zoom in on those two concepts now, on what's going on in Christ's redeeming work on the cross. So hear those two verses again that I just read and notice how God-centered, how God-focused this salvation is, this redemption is. Verse 24, are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This is all of God. It's all his doing. He's the one who justifies. He's the one who gives the faith. He is the one who puts Christ Jesus forward as a propitiation. It's him every time, giving, 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 acting, Acting, God is the one who puts Christ forward. God is the one who gives the gift. God is the one who is acting along God the Father, along with God the Son and God the Spirit. And so the only works then that save are God's works. The Father puts the Son forward as a propitiation. The Son willingly bears the wrath of God and pours out his blood unto death. R.C. Sproul says of the cross this, where do we find in scripture the fullest expression of the love of God? In the cross. And where do we find the most awful manifestation of the wrath of God? Is it not also the cross where he pours out wrath upon his own son? That same act shows that God judges sin and yet is a loving and merciful God. That's what propitiation is all about. Propitiation is a big word. 
I remember years ago preaching a sermon and talking about propitiation, and somebody came up to me afterwards and said, why do you got to use words like that? Try to confuse us. You're trying to sound smart? And I said, that word's in your Bible, by the way. <laughs> Maybe read it, and you wouldn't ask a dumb question like that. This, is, this doesn't belong to the academics. This belongs to us. This is glorious. This is the best news in the whole wide world, friends. And propitiation is all about this, what, what uh, Sproul just said. It is the, the bloody, wrath-satisfying death of the substitute Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. And, and you see that this only makes sense in light of the wrath of God. There are many who want to do away with the wrath of God. A song we often sing, in Christ alone, my hope is found, has the line in, on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. The, the authors of that song tell the story of how an entire denomination approached them and said, in our new, in our new hymnal, we want to use your song, but we would like to change those words because we don't believe God has wrath. So the difference between your song being in our hymnal or not, is whether you let us change those words. And they said, absolutely not. <laughs> you cannot change those words. There are many who don't believe in the wrath of God. They think it's an outdated, stupid concept. But none of this makes sense. There is no need for a bloody sacrifice if God is not angry. If God is not angry with sin. If God is not angry with the sinners who commit the sin, there's no need for the Lord Jesus Christ to go to the cross. Paul said it like this in chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God's wrath, which is pure, which is holy. It's not like our wrath. Even when we're righteously angry about something, we're angry about something we should be angry about, there's also something in us, in our little dark hearts, that's creeping up in that, right? Some ungodliness. Oh, not so with God. This wrath is from heaven, Paul says in chapter 1, verse 18. It is pure. It is perfect. It is righteous. And it is presently being poured out on sin and on sinners, not one single sin escapes the wrath of God. No one is going to get away with anything. That's good news. We live in a world where people in this life get away with stuff all the time, don't we? You look at people committing flagrant crimes that are hurting people. And nothing ever happens to them in this life. But listen, not one, not one single sin will go unpunished. Not one. The wrath of God is presently being poured out, and there's an even greater expression of that wrath that is coming. Paul has said in chapter 2, verse 5, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day when the wrath of God's righteous judgment will be revealed. What a scary concept. Almighty God storing up. It's just stacking up wrath to be poured out. Chapter 3, verse 6, Paul says, God is righteous to inflict his wrath. It's right that he does so. And so although the notion of a God who has wrath is incredibly unpopular in our day, Scripture is clear. From Genesis to Revelation, the God of the Bible is full of wrath towards the unrighteous and towards unrighteousness. In fact, the Bible speaks more of the wrath of God than it does the love of God. 
And so the greatest problem, the greatest threat that any human being that has ever lived is facing is the just, righteous wrath of God. That is the number one problem for every person you meet. God's righteous judgment will fall upon the unrighteous. And so that's why this idea of propitiation is the greatest news you've ever heard. It's the best news you could ever conceive of. No man could conceive of this. Men find this idea offensive. But no unrighteous sinner could ever have a relationship with the perfectly righteous God without Christ's redeeming and propitiatory work on the cross. And that is God's gift of grace to his people. The one thing we need. The one thing without which our relationship to God would just be him condemning us for our rebellion. It's that that he has given to us as a gift. What a mercy from God this is. He didn't have to do this. Think of this, apart from this propitiation, God's wrath would never be satisfied. If you were just to to stand before God in your unrighteousness and answer for it and get the paycheck you deserved, his vengeance would be poured out on you without ceasing for all of eternity. It would never ever, ever stop. It would never, ever be satisfied. What could possibly be more horrifying than that? But instead, God the Father unleashed his fury on his son. The full force of divine wrath that his people rightly deserved fell hard upon Christ on Calvary's cross. Steve Lawson says a tsunami of wrath swept across Jesus Christ as he bore our sins, and now there is no more wrath that remains for those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ. Why would God do that? Why would God show that kind of kindness to us? Why would he be that gracious? Well, the Bible gives us an answer. The Bible gives us an answer to that. And the answer is it's not that you're great, it's that he's great. He did it for his glory. He did it for the sake of his name. Paul says in the second half of verse 25 here, this was to show God's righteousness. Philippians 2 Verse 7, Paul says, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why did God do this? Why did God act in, in the face of, of such human rebellion and in, in such, 
such hatred for God from those he had created. Why did God do it? God acted for God's own sake. That's why he did it. See, we're not the central character of the story. God is the central character of the story. He made this gracious way of salvation for his own glory. Now, people struggle with that. Christians struggle with that. They don't like that. They don't like to be told that what God has done, he did for his own sake. Why? Well, when I act for myself, when I act for my own glory, no one benefits from that. Nothing good comes from that when when Jason acts for his own glory. In fact, if anything, others are harmed by my selfishness and pride when I am acting for my own glory. Not so with God. Thank, Thank God that with the bloody death of his son, God is acting in the interest of his own glory, and that is the best thing that could ever possibly happen because God's glory is magnified not just in his justice and righteousness, but also in his grace and mercy. So we should, we should delight that God wants to magnify the glory of his own name because for thus that means mercy that we wouldn't deserve. It means grace. God could have, if the goal is demonstrate God's righteousness, which is the goal, Paul says, he could have done that in a different way. God could demonstrate his righteousness by every single time a sin is committed, executing his righteous wrath on the spot. Right on the spot. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, he could have just killed them. Right on the spot when you sin, he could kill you. He could execute his justice right there, destroy you with wrath from heaven, and he would be righteous in doing so. He could demonstrate his righteousness by just dropping the bomb every single time someone sins. And then no one would be saved. Praise the Lord for his mercy and grace. Praise the Lord that he is acting for the sake of his name where it's not just his justice and righteousness that are being magnified, but it is his grace and his mercy that are being magnified. And so the problem is that God is, is, is magnifying his righteousness and his justice, but also his grace and the mercy. How can these two things go together? How can he be both? How can God be the righteous judge who must punish every sin? He must judge all unrighteousness. How can that be true and God still be merciful to sinners like us? How can God be gracious and merciful and still just at the same time? Of course, we know if we went to a human court and the judge did this, we would be outraged. Say a member of our family was was murdered in a brutal way, God forbid. And we went to the courtroom and they found the perpetrator. He was dead to rights and they they made their case and it was a clear-cut case. And the judge says, but I've decided to be merciful you can go home. I don't hold your sins against you. It's not a good judge. It's a wicked judge. So how can God do this? The gospel has an answer how God can be just and righteous and merciful and gracious. And the answer is the propitiation of Christ. The substitutionary sacrifice of 
of Christ. That's how these things can be married together. How God can be all of these things. This atoning work of Christ, it looks backwards and it looks forwards. Look at what Paul says as he goes on in verse 25. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So the atoning work of Christ, Paul says, it reaches all the way backwards, all the way back to the saints of the Old Testament. He says in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. In other words, Paul says, God was righteous even as he passed over the sins of those Old Testament saints who trusted in him. He uses the word forbearance. Forbearance just means God was patiently holding back his wrath against those who were trusting in his promises. He was being patient. He was forbearing. He, he in other words, didn't punish the sins of the saints in the old covenant, even though Christ in time had not yet come to die on the cross. There are many examples of this forbearance that Paul's talking about. Many examples of this passing over of sins in the Old Testament. I'll give you one glaring one. King David, when he committed adultery and murder. God's own word in Leviticus chapter 20 and chapter 24 call for the death penalty for the sins of adultery and murder. God has said they must be put to death. But what happens to David? What happens when the prophet Nathan comes and confronts David? What did the prophet Nathan say after David confessed his sin? 2 Samuel chapter 12 verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Where is the justice in that? David had stolen another man's wife and then murdered that man to cover it up. And God says to him, I've put away your sin. You shall not die. God, what about God's own word? It says those who commit these sins should be put to death. How can God simply say then to David, I've put away your sin? Well, Romans gives us the answer right here. Here's the answer. It is the forbearance, the self-restraint, the patience of God. See, God was able to do this because he knew what he was going to do in Christ. The plan of God for all eternity was to offer his son as a propitiation for sin for all who believed in him. So it's not as though David committed these grievous sins and God said, you're one of the good guys, I'll just brush this under the rug. No, those sins were going to be judged. They were going to be punished. Wrath that had been stored up for those specific sins of that specific man were going to, that wrath was going to be poured out. But God was patient because he knew how he would pour that wrath out. It's the bloody death of Jesus at the cross that puts every argument against God's righteousness to rest because people look at a story like David and they go, well, where's the righteousness of God in that? That's not a righteous God. That's an unjust judge. 
No, but it's the propitiation of Christ. Because all of the sins of all of the saints of the Old Testament, including these specific sins of King David, were punished in Jesus Christ on the cross. That's what Paul says. So the atoning work of Christ looks backwards for all of God's people. But the atoning work of Christ also looks forward all the way to eternity. It says in verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So the cross not only looked backwards as a, as a sacrifice for the sins that had already been committed by the Old Testament saints, but Jesus Christ was punished for all of his people. He was punished for all who would believe in him for all time, backwards and forwards. And we need to understand something about the work of Christ in doing this. Because there's some, some disastrous teaching on this. The work of Jesus Christ on the cross was not an attempt at propitiation. It was a propitiation. Elder D.J. Ward said this, the death of Jesus wasn't an attempt, it was an accomplishment. So important that we know that. It's not as though on the cross that all of the sins of all people who had ever lived in the world were placed on Christ and he paid for them. Because what would it mean if that happened? Well, I'll tell you what it would mean. If that were true, everyone's debt really would be paid. If Jesus made propitiation for everyone that ever lived, there's no wrath of God left for anyone that ever lived. No one goes to hell. No one could. God would be unjust in sending them there. Even our courts don't let, don't let us uh, condemn one person for a crime and then take the same crime and apply it to another person and send them to jail. You each have to commit a crime. And if Christ paid for it, if he made propitiation, God would be unjust if anyone ever went to hell. He would be unrighteous to punish Jesus for David's sin of adultery and murder and to punish David for David's sin of adultery and murder. Are you tracking with me? No, the, the, the redemption, and this is so sweet. It's so beautiful. This propitiation was for specific people, those who belonged to God, past, present, future. Jesus took names to the cross, not a vague sense of humanity. He accomplished something on the cross. He didn't hope to accomplish something on the cross. The cross didn't make salvation possible. The cross accomplished salvation. So all of those for whom Christ made propitiation were saved by him because no wrath remains for them. Jesus paid it all. This is what it means. We often don't think of the implications of what the Bible actually says. We think of things in categories that we've heard that come from human philosophy. And so we hear people say things like, well, you know, Jesus, here's the beautiful thing. He died for Hitler the same way he died for you. Not according to Paul. Not according to Jesus not if propitiation is true. That comes from human philosophy because it makes us feel good. We like to hear things like that. It's not what the Bible teaches. 
Steve Lawson says Jesus was not cheated or shortchanged on the cross. He got everything he paid for. The cross was an accomplishment. It accomplished salvation. And that, for you, believer, should give you unshakable assurance in your salvation. Unshakable hope as you go through this world. So all of humanity, Paul has lumped together indivisibly in sin. One mass of humanity, there are no divisions, no one sits on the outside of this, all are together in rebellion and sin under the wrath of God, but now the cross of Christ has divided humanity into two very distinct groups. For the first time, two distinct groups categories because of the cross of Christ God never ever winks at sin he never ever sweeps sin under the rug God's wrath must be satisfied and so all of mankind is in one of two groups they are either among those for whom God's wrath has been totally satisfied in Christ you're either in that category of people or you are in the other category and there only is one other category. Those who have rejected the substitute Jesus and will pay the penalty for their sin themselves forever. God will pour his wrath out on this category of people in full measure and it will never, ever ever end. Those are the only two categories of people that there are. Do you know which one you're in? There's only one thing that separates these two categories. Paul says it is faith in Christ. That's what defines who's in which Category. There's no other distinction. No one is more deserving than anyone else to be in the category of Jesus paid it all. There's no one more deserving than anyone else to be in the category of you're going to answer for your own sins, your own self. There's no distinction. There's no one who has anything to offer to God that's worth anything that would make him save us. There's nothing that could, could force God to give us a gift or put him into our debt. It's all of grace. All of grace to be received by faith alone. And so the gospel's call, the gospel's good and gracious command is to believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved is the gospel's call. Maybe you haven't even moved past my saying that propitiation and, and God's statements there demand that Jesus' death isn't the same for all people everywhere or else no one could go to hell and you're still like, I'm kind of mad about that. This would have been a good week to stay home. Friend, get out of your own head. Here's the gospel's promise. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
Looking back from eternity, we can look back on the propitiation in Christ and say, why did you choose me? But on this side of the cross, the command of the gospel is, repent of your sins and trust in Christ, and all who do that, he will save. We don't have to get up in our own heads. We don't have to get mad. We don't have to figure it out. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Just like David, when he confessed his sin, and God said, your sin has been taken away, you shall not die. When you believe on him, God's wrath is removed from you and you are saved. You are given eternal life from him. We don't have to, we don't have to get into all these intricacies and debates and, and get all worked up. This is the gospel's command to you. Believe. And if you do that, the gospel's promises, and you'll be saved. But what if we don't believe in Jesus Christ? What if we reject him as our substitute to sacrifice? What if we refuse his lordship in our life? We like him. We'd like to go to heaven as opposed to the other alternative. That was me my whole life growing up. I definitely don't want to go to hell, but I also don't want God to boss me around. What if we reject his lordship in our life? Well, as we've already said, the cross clearly demonstrates that God must punish to the fullest extent all of those whose sin has not been propitiated by Christ. John chapter 3, verse 36, Jesus says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. The wrath of God remains on him. It's already there. The wrath of, just like Paul's saying, the wrath of God is already there. There's one way out, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus uses these two words interchangeably. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Believe and obey. They go hand in hand. You don't get one without the other. Those who do not trust to Christ, those who do not come to him in obedience, must atone for their own sins, and it is impossible to do. God's wrath will never be exhausted. It will continue to be pulled out, poured out. You will never reach the finish line if you try to pay for your own sins. Salvation is found in Jesus Christ alone. But again, this righteousness, his perfect righteousness, he just gives. He just gives it to all who believe. It's the righteousness of God, verse 22 says, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This righteousness that we so desperately need which we don't possess, but which we must have if we're to receive eternal life, is given to us as a gift by his grace. And so, fellow sinner, trust in him. Trust in his sovereign grace. This is the gospel's command to all of us, to all humanity. Trust in him. Run to Christ with no payment in your hand, trusting in none of your own righteousness and receive from him his perfect righteousness. Receive from him eternal life. Christian, look to him for full assurance of your salvation, not to yourself. 
Worship him. Submit to him. Treasure him. Receive this free gift and rejoice in him. This is the gospel's command and it is the Christian's delight. This is where life is found. This is where hope is found. This is where confidence is found. It's where peace is found. It's where the ability to just get out of bed the next day when the world feels like it is crushing in on you with a weight of anxiety and fear and worry and sickness and disease and darkness and sin and rebellion and you think, is there a bunker I can go hide in somewhere until I just die? This is where the strength comes from. Trust in him, amen? Let's stand up together. Almighty God, you are infinitely worthy of our trust of our faith, of our belief, of our worship, of our obedience. We pray, Lord, by your Spirit that you would work all of those things into us, Lord, that we would, we would, we would know the joy of our salvation in joyless and dark days. Lord, that we would know the hope of our salvation in hopeless days that are filled with worry and anxiety, that we would, Lord, know the fruit of our salvation in repentance and obedience and faith in a rebellious world. Pray, Lord, that you would work the work of this saving gospel truth into our hearts, that we would respond as we should because of your Spirit's work in us. Pray, Lord, that you would make us increasingly faithful, increasingly humble, increasingly grateful. Cause us to delight in you in all things we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.